in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the patience of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one can boast. We were are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Amen. And uh, there are so many things going on right now. I can't take time for all of them. Uh, there are uh, there are college students finishing up a year of school. There are high school students graduating. Uh, there are a bunch of people who were involved with an epic theatrical production uh, recently. Um, there are so many good things going on. Um, but actually, one thing I want to make sure and not miss today is that our friends Andy and Jenny are here today. Are they here? Here we go. They sat in a different spot today. They're throwing me off. But Andy and Jenny are here today. Uh, you've heard uh, from Jenny just a few weeks ago about some of the good things that they are doing in Indonesia with their lives. Uh, they're here with us today for just a brief visit in the United States uh, and then tomorrow, they're getting on a plane tomorrow afternoon and flying back to Indonesia to continue serving people there with the love of Jesus Christ and with the hope of the gospel. Uh, and so, Andy and Jenny, uh, while we have this very brief moment to have you here with us, I just want to say on behalf of this church family here, on behalf of your brothers and sisters here, we love you. We love what you're doing with your lives. We love the way that you represent Jesus in Indonesia, and we're cheering for you. We're praying for you, and our hearts go with you as you get on a very long airplane ride tomorrow afternoon. So we will miss you guys, and we look forward to seeing you next time you're back here in Illinois. Oh, and today is Mother's Day. <laughs> um, 
you know, some years we might pause our series of sermons and preach a sermon that specifically uh, is designed for the occasion of Mother's Day. Uh, but this year, our sermon series, moving through the book of Ephesians, has dropped us off on a word from God that is so good, I didn't want to wait one more week to preach it. Because today's passage of Holy Scripture, which Junia just read for us from Ephesians chapter 2, it gives us a word from God that is actually like the best news that a mom could hear. This passage gives us a word from God that is the most deeply freeing message that a mom could hear. It gives us, I I mean, I know pastors are at risk of saying things like this too often and therefore losing credibility, but, but for real, I'll leave it for your judgment. This might be the most important message for moms to hear today. And of course, this is not only a word from God for moms, college age women. This is a word from God for you. And single women of all ages, this is a word of God full of good news for you. And teenagers, this is a word from God full of good news for you. Anyone who arrived today on Mother's Day feeling more tears than laughter, this is a word from God full of good news for you. For anyone who arrived today feeling judged or feeling like you don't really belong, this is a word from God with good news for you. And so moms, along with men and women of all ages, God has a word of good news for you. And this word is a word of good news that is all about amazing grace. How sweet the sounds. Now, somebody hears that and thinks in the back of their head, I don't see what's so amazing about grace. I'm glad that you ask those kinds of questions if that's you. This morning, I want to show you a little bit, a little bit from God's word about what makes grace from God so incredibly amazing. And in order to go at least a little bit deeper in our understanding of what makes grace so amazing, we're going to think, as we pay attention to this passage, we're going to think a little bit about what we are saved from, what we believe we're saved from as Christians. We're going to think a little bit about who we believe we're saved by as Christians. And we're going to think a little bit about what we're saved into as Christians And then we'll pay attention to what all of this means for ordinary people like you and me today. So in order to go a little bit deeper in our understanding of what makes grace so amazing, first of all, we need to we need to understand what it is that we are saved from, according to the Bible. Look with me, if you would, at the opening words of Ephesians chapter two, verse one, it says, and you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All right. Happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, you were once dead. All right. In fact, actually, would you do this with me for a second? Can you find somebody sitting near you and can you just look at them with a warm smile and say to them, you were dead? Go ahead. <laughs> Now, I recognize it's a little awkward to tell somebody you were dead. Why? Because they're here. (laughs) Because they're generally, the person you just said you were dead to is probably a relatively healthy person with many good qualities about them doing wonderful things in their life. And we know that God's word says about that person that you just said to you were dead. We know that God says, God's word tells us that they are made in God's image. There's so many good and valuable things we could say, and they're here with a heartbeat, and they're here communicating with you, and yet here is God's diagnosis of relatively healthy people with many good qualities about us. God's Word's diagnosis is you were actually dead. In what respect? You were dead with respect to the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. In what sense were we dead? We were dead spiritually speaking. We were dead in the sense that the powers, the twin powers of sin and death have had a grip on all of our lives. In fact, this passage goes on to describe even, we might say, a kind of slavery that we've lived in. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Do you notice, by the way, sometimes as Christians we talk about the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul just named these three things, the world, the devil, and the flesh, in which we have lived in this kind of slavery to the powers of sin and death, such that we were dead, spiritually speaking. And not only that, the end of verse 3 says something perhaps even more uncomfortable It says that for those of us who were spiritually dead, living our lives in a kind of slavery to the powers of sin and death, that we were by nature, by our fallen nature, that is, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's a hard word for us to grapple with. This idea that we were spiritually dead and we were facing a future day of experiencing God's opposition, even God's wrath. I'm going to be honest and say I don't know precisely all of the details of what it would mean to face the wrath of God. But I do know this, 
the idea that there is a coming day of judgment is an idea that echoes through all of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it's an idea that echoes through the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who said things like this in the Sermon on the Mount, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Jesus says again at the very end, the very closing words of his most famous sermon, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Or on another occasion when Jesus was speaking with that religious leader Nicodemus, A man whose life, by many people's standards, was super holy compared to most people. Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, told him the good news that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But in that same conversation, just a few minutes later, a few paragraphs later in John chapter 3, Jesus also says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I need to be honest enough and say, I don't know everything that it would mean to face the wrath of God, the holy opposition of God against our sin and rebellion. I don't know everything that that means, but I do know it's a consistent teaching of Scripture throughout the Old Testament and even in the teaching of Jesus himself. And therefore, we would be fools to ignore it. And we would be wise to slow down and listen carefully. Ephesians chapter 1 kind of invites us to consider who we once were apart from the grace of God. And it invites us to say, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. I just outed a group of Swifties over there who love Taylor Swift. It's not every day that I quote Taylor Swift in a sermon, but when I do, I appreciate the support. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2 invites us to say, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Except that can misfire a couple of ways. That idea can misfire if we end up thinking, it's me. I'm the problem in some sense that makes me weird or unlike everybody else, as if there's something uniquely and specifically wrong with who I am. Something that I don't share with everybody else. And so it might be better for us to say, it's us. Hi, we are the problem. It's us. But another way this can misfire is if we start thinking about a day of judgment that is to come and even this idea of being spiritually dead in sin. 
spiritually enslaved to the twin powers of sin and death. And if we hear all of that and we immediately think that would be really good for those people to hear about. Because notice that's not how Paul is talking about these things as he talks to the church in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And at first glance, reading this in its original context, it almost might feel like here is Saul of Tarsus. A Jewish guy who grew up learning the Hebrew scriptures, who was absolutely devoted to saying his prayers and was absolutely devoted to doing whatever his tribe taught him to do. Here's this Jewish guy who grew up reading the Bible, and now he's looking at a church of former former pagan worshipers in the city of Ephesus. People who used to worship Artemis, the great of Ephesus. And it might at first appear as though he's saying, you guys, you used to be dead in your sins. But in case that's how it comes across, notice where Paul goes immediately after that. These pronouns are very important. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. We, we, we. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we miss fire if we think about the coming day of judgment and we think that's for them out there. One of the most artful teachings about God's coming judgment in the Holy Scriptures uh, is found, I think, In Amos chapters 1 and 2. The prophet Amos, you can kind of imagine him in a Jewish gathering in the city of Jerusalem several hundred years before Jesus arrived. And he gathers a crowd together and he begins proclaiming a message about God's coming judgment for those people out there who live in that direction. And you can almost imagine the people in Jerusalem like, that's right, those people are wicked and evil and they've done some wrong stuff. Preach that stuff about their judgment. And then Amos points over in that direction. And he says, those people who live over there, God is going to judge them because of their sins. And you can imagine the people in Jerusalem nodding with approval and beginning to cheer. And he says, those people who live in that direction, those people who live off that way to in that direction, God is going to judge them because of their sins. And the applause grows louder. And those people over there in that direction, God is going to judge them because of their sins. And you can almost see the people clapping their hands. And then Amos steps aside from his podium, as it were, and he says... And y'all here in the city of Jerusalem and for the southern and northern tribes of Israel alike, God is going to judge us because of our sins. And you can imagine the people freezing their claps midway through and beginning to realize That this stuff about a coming day of judgment is not just how I can feel empowered to hate those who are out there. This should create a holy reverence in here. 
in my own heart. Recognizing it's not just, hey, it's them. Hi, they're the problem. It's them. But as we understand the message of Scripture, we come to agree with how God's Word teaches it. It's us. Hi, my name is Josh, and I was once dead, enslaved to the powers of sin and death. This is our shared story, church. And if we want to understand amazing grace, we need to understand the seriousness of what we have been saved from. What the Bible describes as a coming day of judgment, even what the Bible describes as the wrath of God on account of our slavery to sin. But if we want to understand amazing grace, we cannot... And we must not stop there, right? We must go deeper and understand something secondly about who we are saved by. Ephesians chapter 2 develops kind of as a drama. It begins with a problem that mounts and escalates. And then it brings us to a pivot point. And let me ask you this, who is the hero in the pivot, at the pivot point of Ephesians chapter 2? Is it you? Is it me? Is it one ethnic group in the church family or another ethnic group? Who is the hero at the pivot point of the story of the gospel? Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4 tells us there is precisely one hero in the story of redemption. And it's not me and it's not you. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But check out these words at the beginning of verse 4. But God. You want to know who the hero is in the Christian understanding of grace? The hero is not me, is not you. It's God. God. In fact, would you take a second and would you look at anybody that you said to earlier, you were dead, and can you just smile at them and say, but God. (laughs) But God. (laughs) There are junior hires in the room, so I need to clarify one T, not two, okay? So um, when we say that word, we just got to clarify, all right? So look at somebody and tell them, God did something about our human problem. God did something about it. God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. See, sometimes when we slow down and we pay attention to the reality of God's coming judgment on account of human sin... We get so discouraged and we feel so down in the dumps and we feel so beaten into the ground that we begin to believe that the best we could ever hope for is just that God would be willing to tolerate us sometime. But while we were still dead and enslaved to sin and death, 
God did something. And He did something not just because He felt obligated to do it. You know why He did something about our problem? The answer is there in verse 4. Out of the overflow of His mercy... Not because of pulling out some thin portion of just a little bit of love that he might have been able to find toward you. But because of his great love. Because of his great love. Let this sink in a little bit. Because of his great love. While we were still dead. And spiritually speaking, while we were still as useful to the kingdom of God as a corpse. Maybe that's slightly overstated, but that's actually how it talks about it, right? You were dead. And while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, God, because of the great love with which he loved us, he stepped in and did something about our problem. Praise his name. And it's interesting, in order to describe what God did for us, the author of this letter, Paul, kind of, as best as we can tell, invents three verbs. He kind of takes a couple of thing, a couple ideas and makes conglomerate words that didn't exist before as far as we're aware. The first verb that he creates in order to express what God has done for us is he says he together made us alive. One big verb. <laughs> he together alivened us. And he not only together alivened us, he also together raised us. And having together raised us, he also together seated us. What's going on there? As we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, the historical events of what Jesus, the Messiah, did for us in order to bring us near to God. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. We know that. But then what happened next? He was buried and then and then he was raised We call that theologically his resurrection. And he ascended up to heaven. We call that theologically his ascension. And now he is seated in a place of victorious authority at the right hand of the Father. We call that theologically his session. And here's what Paul is saying. When we were dead and hadn't yet contributed any more than a corpse could contribute to this whole agreement, God joined us together with Jesus in his resurrection. And he made us spiritually alive where we once had been spiritually dead in union with Jesus. And he lifted us up along with Jesus just as Jesus was lifted up. And he has already, in some sense, seated us in that place of final victorious authority alongside and along with Jesus Christ. 
Now, this is weird to think about because just like we were saying, it's weird the way Paul says you were dead when we've been breathing all this time. It's weird for Paul to say you're seated at the right hand of God when you're here on one of these blue benches. But you get the idea, right? Just as spiritual death doesn't mean you've stopped breathing. So in a similar way, to be raised together with Jesus Christ from our spiritual death, to be lifted up together with Jesus, to be seated in the Father's presence along with him, doesn't change the way that our physical hearts beat or our physical lungs breathe. It doesn't change our physical location immediately, but it changes everything about our life spiritually and about our access to God the Father right now in the present tense. And how did this all happen? This happens not because of what I did, not because of what you did, but all, how would we say it? Well, let's say it the way Paul does. All by grace you have been saved. But God. You know, sometimes um, there are groups of college students who will go and start sharing about Jesus on campus or things like that. And they might ask a question to people like, if you were to go to heaven today and you meet an angel there at the pearly gates and they ask you, on what basis should you be accepted into heaven? How would you answer that question? And most people, when they hear that question, want to start by saying, well, here's what I did. But better news the gospel brings. Our answer to that imaginary question doesn't need to be, here's what I did, which would leave all of us feeling awfully insecure at best. It doesn't begin with, here's what I did. It begins with, here's what God did. Um, This point was memorably driven home by a Scottish pastor who's been preaching in Ohio for a few decades. That's impressive itself. If you're from Scotland and you moved to Ohio for 40 years, like kudos to you. Um, But there's this Scottish preacher who's been living in Ohio. If you're from Ohio, I love Ohio too. But um, but, uh, this guy named Alistair Begg uh, drove home this point very clearly when he said, I'd love to find the thief on the cross someday in heaven. And and ask him, you know, how did that whole Pearly Gates thing go for you? And he invites us to imagine the thief coming to the Pearly Gates and meeting this imaginary angel. And he says, on what basis should we let you in here? Why should we let you in? And the thief says, I don't know. And the angel says, all right, let me slow down and let's ask a few questions here. Can you tell me about your baptism? The guy said, I was never baptized. Can you tell me about church membership? Never heard of being a member of a church, sir. Can you tell me, can you tell me about 
what you did for Jesus throughout your life? Nope. (laughs) And maybe the angel gets frustrated and he needs to go and call a supervisor angel to come and help him out here. We got this dude and we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with this rough looking dude here. Uh, Can you ask him some questions? And so the supervisor angel comes over and says, let me get this. Uh, Sir, can you tell me a little bit about justification by faith? And the guy says, huh? How about the doctrine of scripture? I don't know. How many prayer meetings did you go to? I didn't. And the supervisor starts scratching his head and they're looking around and they're talking to each other. And they're trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do with this guy? So finally, in frustration, the supervisor angel just says to the thief, well, on what basis are you here? How did you get here today? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. And listen, that's what by grace means. It's not a result of what you've done. It's not a result of what you've figured out. It's not a result of how well you've cleaned up your life. Whether you grew up pagan like the Ephesians who loved Artemis or whether you grew up reading the Bible like Saul of Tarsus. Whoever you are, whatever your background, our only hope before the Father is not, well, here's what I did. Our only hope before the Father is the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's what it means when we say, by grace, through faith. This is a gift, a gift, a gift from God for you. Who's the hero in the Christian understanding of salvation? It's not me. It's not you. It's God. There is one and only one hero. There is one and only one true hope. It's not me. It's not you. It's him. And it's all about what he's done. When we see the seriousness of our situation, living our lives enslaved to sin and death, heading toward what the Bible describes as the wrath of God, when we see the seriousness of our situation and it begins to sink in, we find ourselves saying, praise God for this idea that but God did something about it. Praise God that it's not all left up to me. Praise God that he stepped in and did something for me. Praise God that the man on the middle cross said we could come. We need to understand what we're saved from. And in order to understand amazing grace, we need to understand who we're saved by. And in order to understand amazing grace beyond that, we also need to understand what we are saved into, we might say. Some of us might feel like this is the end of the story. This is the end of the sermon. All we do is we preach forgiveness of sins, and then we ask people to get baptized, and we say, go home and do whatever you feel like. But notice, notice what we're saved into. 
according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved into this whole new relationship with God the Father. This whole new relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which is all by grace and all through faith and not a result of your own doing. We're saved into this precious status, this precious standing, this precious security. This precious, secured hope. We're saved into this hope of by grace, through faith. But what does that mean for us today? Let me suggest to you this passage gives us maybe what we might call two indications that you're getting this message of amazing grace. Two indications that you're getting this message of saved by grace through faith. Two indications that you're getting what it means when it says you were dead, but God did something about it. And the first indication is this. It's the humility of no more boasting. The humility of no more boasting. That's not... What I made up as an application point, that's what verse 9 tells us should be an application point here, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, verse 9, not a result of works, so that nobody should boast. It is an unfortunate fact that Christians across the ages in far too many places and at far too many times, have been known for arrogance rather than humility. It's a great tragedy that many Christians who pride themselves on theological understanding and theological sophistication will sometimes let their ability to articulate Christian doctrines puff them up. Instead of leaving them in a place of humility with no more boasting. It is a sad fact that in a church family or even in a household. Brothers or sisters with whom we link arms and say. Do we agree that it is good news that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And we say yes. And then the attitude we get. Is not an attitude of humility, but an attitude of condescension, looking down on others, feeling like they've figured out more than I have. It's a great grief that this is how Christians have often lived 
And this is why Ephesians 2.9 is so important, not just for a church 2,000 years ago, but this is why Ephesians 2.9 is so important for us today. If we understand the good news of amazing grace, if we understand that it's all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then here's the thing. We ain't got nothing to boast in. Today's Mother's Day. And I already mentioned, at least briefly, I know that Mother's Day is possibly the holiday of the year that comes with the most complex array of emotions. Mother's Day might mean five different things to five different people. But let me talk to moms with kids at home for a minute. Moms with kids at home, you don't need me to tell you that being a mom is hard. Period. It's just plain and simply exhausting. It's challenging. It's difficult. And as the years go by, you replace some of the physical tiredness with emotional tiredness, right? Having kids at home is hard. There's no way to get around that. But let me suggest to you, what makes it feel unbearable? What makes it feel unbearable? Isn't it so often not the work itself, but trying to impress all of the other little judges that we've let into our heads in the process? It's hard no matter what. But you know what makes it downright exhausting and unbearable? is trying to parent in a way to impress everybody else, to show them who you are and how great you are and how awesome you are. It's that need to prove yourself to everybody else, whether that's proving yourself to other people in your household or whether it's proving yourself to other people on Insta or whether it's proving yourself, sadly, to other people in the church that we feel we need to give an account to. Parenting is hard work. But you know what makes it downright exhausting? It's trying to prove ourselves over and over and over again to everybody else. And here's part of the liberating message of amazing grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, means no more boasting is needed. You're free from all of that. You've got the bottomless riches of God's mercy poured out over every error, mistake, or regret in your parenting past. Christian, you've got the unfathomable depths of the great love with which He has loved us surrounding your life like an ocean. You don't need to prove yourself to anybody anymore when you get that. You're set free. You're set free from the need to prove yourself. You're set free from the need to boast. You're set free to speak proudly. If I could borrow words for a minute from that great woman of faith, Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, who knew that really unique pain 
of watching her rival have baby after baby after baby while she had no baby. And for her, it was a deep, deep grief. But if I could borrow words from that great woman of faith, Hannah, for us as a congregation of followers of Jesus today, quote, talk no more so very proudly. When we get, when we get the good news of amazing grace, one thing it means is the humility of no more boasting. And the second thing it means is the ministry of good works prepared in advance. Isn't this cool? Verse 10. This chunk that Junia read for us of Scripture begins with this idea in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And it ends in verse 10 with this idea. Brothers and sisters, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Somebody tell me. For what? Good works. Now this might be surprising because Ephesians 2 just explained with crystal clarity, you are not saved by works. But now Ephesians 2.10 tells us just as clearly, you are saved for good works. You're saved into this new relationship with God in which you are set free from the need to boast and you are set free from slavery to sin and death to go and live your life for a new kind of purpose. To go and live your life serving others for the glory of God. That's what good works is all about. What, are, what does it mean to walk in good works? We might get a glimpse of that if we just look quickly over uh, at a, about a page away in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Paul is going to come back to this idea of how we walk as followers of Jesus. And he says in Ephesians 4 chapter 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Which means what? In a world of harshness. Walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called, but God by grace. It means in a hostile world, walking with all humility and gentleness. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. In an instant and impatient world, walking in good works means walking with patience. In a vengeful world, walking in a manner worthy of the good news of by grace through faith, it means, it means in a hostile and vengeful world, bearing with one another in love. And in a divided world, it means living eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is the gospel of peace. That has been proclaimed around the world and across the ages. It's the good news of amazing grace. And this good news of amazing grace, it doesn't just save us out from something. And it doesn't just tell us about how God has done the heavy lifting for us. 
it also tells us we're called into something. A new way of walking with the humility of no more boasting and with the ministry of good works which God himself has prepared in advance for us to do. I wonder if some of us here have given up on the idea that there is usefulness for your life still in the future. But the message of amazing grace that tells us that when we were once dead, God made us alive together with Christ. The good news of amazing grace tells us of how we can be reconciled to God. How we who were once dead can learn to love Him. And it also tells us how we can learn to walk in love toward our neighbors. How we can learn to walk in love toward others around us. It gives us a vision that whatever your background is, And whatever regrets may weigh you down. Because of God's grace. He has a good purpose for you. And if you're still here and you're not breathing. Christian. That's true for you. He's got good purposes for you. And he's not done yet. Calling you forward into a life of love and good works. Not because we're saved by works, but because we're saved for a whole new kind of lifestyle. No more boasting and no more coasting along in the ways of the world. Now living a different kind of lifestyle. A countercultural lifestyle that looks like Jesus here in Aurora in 2023. More and more and more. All to the praise of His amazing grace. What's so amazing about grace? It tells us what we've been saved from. It tells us you were dead. It tells us who we're saved by. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's our only hope. But God. And it tells us what we're saved into. A new future of fruitful ministry for the good of others and for the glory of God. What is the Lord calling you into today as we hear this good news of amazing grace? At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.